You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's monthly blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show, I'm going to be speaking with Patrick Nation, RA's Head of Films, who's going to explain the story behind some of the fantastic stuff he's directed for us over the years. He'll also give us a preview of RA's forthcoming Real Scenes London documentary. Angus Finlayson will be speaking with Simon Reynolds, Code 9, Holly Herndon and many others about the highly influential writer and theorist Mark Fisher, who we sadly lost back in January. But first, it's Behind the Track, a new regular feature on the hour where we ask an artist to tell us the story behind a track they wrote that's now considered a classic. In 2002, Youngstar, who was part of the group Musical Mob, released an instrumental club track called Pulse X, which basically invented the grime genre. Even today, 15 years after its release, Pulse X is still a staple in DJ sets, while its influence can be felt in countless new records. Youngstar, I'm Youngstar from Northwest London. I'm the producer of Pulse X. track is basically a simple eight bar track it's like a baseline track i'd say it comes from like uk garage and it's a crossover from like grime dubstep like electronic music dance music it's a it's a track for like mcs really pulse x came out in 2002 but i produced it before say around 2001 I actually won. I actually won the lottery one time, <laughs> and I just bought equipment, music equipment. But the amount that I won, it gave me enough money to buy like a DAT machine, a mixing desk, a sampler. I think I was 18 back then. I was working in my godfather's shop. It's a, it's a Jamaican party shop, Jamaican restaurant. I was going to college as well, so I always wanted to like, you know, like get my music out there. And then all of a sudden, like, I must have played the lottery. And when I got five numbers, I thought, wow, like, I thought I had like about a hundred grand <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and then I checked properly on the teletext check. And then it's only like, it's 1,500. But at the time I thought, wow, that's still decent. The first thing I bought was like trainers, like night trainers, like TNs, they're like 120. <laughs> and then I just ordered some music equipment, like that machine, mixing this. You know, like one of those Akai samplers, S2000. And then from there, yeah, I just carried on making beats and that's just how, how things went. It was just always making beats at the time. Basically, I was just messing around on the computer. I had this program, it's like an 808 simulator. Basically, just messing around on the jump pad, you know, just tweaking the sounds. I had this track in there and I saved it in the computer for like a few months until we was all in studio together. There's me, Dynamic, LMG and Solar. At that time, we called ourselves Musical Mob and we were just going through some beats. And um, I played them this beat, the first bit of Pulse X, which is an eight bar loop. And then basically we put the other bit together. We were just creating a vibe of that kind of sound. At the time, it was just, yeah, like there was just vibes there, the energy was there. And then we thought, yeah, we can do something with this beat. 
we just thought at the time that was the one. Basically, we would always go and cut dubs, give them out to DJs. That was the first track we actually gave to to like big DJs like DJ Fonty, um, Slimzy. Those are the kind of DJs that got the track first. From then, it just it just blew up. It just all of a sudden heard it getting played in like Iron Apple, and I started hearing it on tape packs. And I was like, wow, this this tune is actually it's getting big. We released it on as a white label, press 100 copies. They just went all of them just sold so quickly like there was even selling in shops like black market uptown records it's like the reaction was just is it was just crazy basically we had the order to press up like three thousand then another three thousand and then they all just went <laughs> i just thought i can't i can't even explain like what i was thinking it was just like at the time it was it was just like i always wanted to make tracks so this was like the time for me you know going to clubs here and your music get played so yeah, it's like, it's a good feeling. The sound that we was playing, it was like, it was, it was always garage. It was like, you know, like the 4-4 garage, uh, two-step garage, and then it was getting darker, like the beats were getting darker. And then that's the kind of stuff I was making. Like it was like the dark, like UK garage. And it sounded a bit like drum and bass because I used to play jungle drum and bass. And then I would mix like tracks like Pole 6, like the eight bar sound, I'd mix that into like garage. Yeah, that was the kind of sound that was getting big at the time. There was Pulse Y, then there was Pulse XYZ. There was Pulse Extra, Pulse 4-4. All these remixes, they came out of basically bootlegging. Like other producers would go around like copying the track, bootlegging it, selling their own copies, remixing it, sampling it, making their own versions. So basically I had to go back, hear them versions out and then I had to go back in the studio and make them again because that's my sound. So I had to make it again and press it up and put them out myself. It's still a good feeling to hear it like in a rave because you think, wow, that's your sound. And it's still going. It just keeps dropping like all the time. Like, it's, it's just mad. And then I'm just standing there and people don't even know it's me that, that I made the beat. <laughs> it's influential to like a lot of producers, a lot of DJs. That's, that's really good to hear. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The British writer, theorist, teacher and music journalist Mark Fisher died last month at the age of 48. Mark's work connected with people in numerous ways. Perhaps they encountered him as a maverick academic in the 90s, or stumbled across K-Punk, his influential blog on popular culture in the noughties. Or maybe they enjoyed his vivid, prescient writing on electronic music for publications like The Wire. I first encountered him in about 2009 as a young dubstep fan lurking in the nerdier corners of the dance music internet. One of my favourite haunts was a forum called Dissensus, which was co-founded by Mark. There, and on a network of related blogs, I stumbled into a raging debate about the supposed decline of British dance music. Mark and others said that dubstep didn't live up to the future rush of its predecessors' hardcore jungle and UK garage. Us younger fans disagreed but we couldn't seem to find the silver bullet which would vanquish their annoyingly persuasive arguments. When, a couple of years later, I encountered Mark as a lecturer at the University of East London, I was surprised. 
could this generous, enthusiastic and approachable teacher really be the same person who had engaged in those bitter ideological conflicts? Mark was teaching a course on music and politics, and he gave me a lot of the framework through which I understand dance music culture today. The tributes which poured in after Mark took his own life last month suggested that he was just such an inspiration for many people. I spoke to some of his friends, colleagues and admirers to find out more about the impact of his work and the person behind the fierce intellect. I'm Simon Reynolds, pop culture writer and comrade of Mark Fisher's in the blogging wars of the early 21st century. I first met Mark in the late 90s when I went to profile an organisation he was involved with called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. It was a sort of rogue cell of theorists and philosophers um, nominally attached to Warwick University, uh, but increasingly arcane and deranged in its researches, which was mashing up cyberpunk and um, Deleuze and Guattari and all kinds of um, chaos theory, and it was getting to superstition and magic and physics and mineralogy and every you know a mad mashup of ideas also inspired a lot by rave culture particularly by jungle and, and um, the sort of science fiction music of drum and bass um, and they were doing all this kind of really out there writing so i went to do a piece on them uh for an academic magazine and um spent the whole afternoon and, and evening with them uh, in in, uh, in warwick Mark stood out even then because his writing for the CCRU was very sort of lucid and passionately argued and clear, whereas quite a lot of the CCRU writing was pretty dense and, and forbidding. When I met him in person, I was struck by, again, his eloquence and his sort of urgency. He was very sort of thin and intense and his hands were shaking as he was speaking or he'd be gesturing in a sort of agitated way. He really had a kind of, kind of evangelical urgency and a sort of belief in what the CCRU were doing. Later on, uh, a few years later, I would, um, I would sort of become aware of his writing and when he wrote for Hyperdub, which was a, in those days was a website, not a label. It was started by Steve Goodman, who'd been part of the CCRU and you know, later obviously became Code 9 and this huge force in dance music and... But initially it was a website that had sort of more theoretical, high-powered crit criticism to do with dance music. And Mark Fisher was writing then under the name Mark de Rosario, which I think was his mother's maiden name. Um, and, you know, writing really cool pieces on Oxide and Neutrino and UK Garage. The thing that struck me the most about the CCRU and particularly, I'd say particularly Mark and Kojo. I went to South London to meet Steve Goodman, AKA Code9, producer, DJ, academic, and founder of the Hyperdub label. His flat's on a busy road, so please forgive the traffic noise. I'd never seen anyone writing about music the way they did. And so what they did for me was help rationalize these powerful musical affects that were dominating my musical interests in the 90s. Particularly the way they both wrote about Jungle was a bit of a revelation to me because the music was a revelation. So the idea that um, there'd be someone writing about it in a way that did justice to the music. Um, so one way or another, Mark and Kojo kind of um, defined part of my musical brain, I think. And without 
Without either of them, Hyperdub definitely wouldn't exist. Do you remember when you first encountered Mark? I met Mark for the first time in 1996. We'd both come from different places to, to do PhDs. Uh, the philosophy department at the University of Warwick, he would usually end up teaching the class. So you'd usually end up taking over the class and teaching the tutor and the rest of the class, or like upgrading everyone else that was in the class, including the member of staff. Um, so even though he was like a peer who was studying the same thing at the same time as me, he kind of felt like a mentor. The kind of stuff we were writing about ended up definitely defining at least the early existence of Hyperdub musically. Because, I mean, just thinking about Burial, it's only because of the, the articles and the writing we had up there, whether it would be my interviews with LB or Mark's writing, etc., etc., that Burial started sending me music. So he started sending music based on the writing that was there. So I think we had a cool feedback loop between the, the, the concepts that were put forward in Hyperdub Phase 1 and then the music that started to gravitate towards us when we started as a label. And obviously the Burial was the best example because that was the... In a way, Burial was the main link between Hyperdub and Mark. But of course, Mark wrote this extremely influential article about Burial um, for The Wire, which kind of framed Burial's music in a certain way and I think helped a lot of people to maybe understand or kind of interpret that music. Yeah, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long... It was a long symbiotic process. In other words, I probably wouldn't have got into Ballard if it wasn't for Mark, meeting Mark in the 90s. And when I wrote the press release for Burial's first album, it was just heavily saturated in Ballard and Drown World. And then it's not a coincidence that somehow that kind of, the way that was framed in the press release and the way the music sounded would end up appealing to Mark because in a way he kind of set me off on that, that course of being interested in Ballard 10 years before for a good chunk of music that I've been interested in, he kind of um, defined the filter through which I heard that. Later on, a few years later, um, the blogging scene really took off and um, I started my own blog, Bliss Blog, in late 2002. Matthew Ingram started Wobot in the first months of 2003. And then Mark, Mark Fisher, started K-Punk around the same time, I think it was the spring of 2003. And it very quickly became, his blog, K-Punk, uh, really became like the hub of um, that scene, that network of, of what I used to like to think as the British music press in exile. I felt like that we were, you know, most of them, yeah, there were a few professionals like myself, but most of them were people who should have gone on to be the next generation of, of sort of high-powered music critics if the old music press, the post-punk music press still existed, the enemy, Melody Maker uh, sounds. If those sort of magazines had still been the force they were, all the writers would have been star writers. The spirit of K-Punk, his blog was, it had this much wider, expansive vision and it covered, it didn't just cover music, it covered film, art, fiction, politics, theory, all sort of mashed up and cross-referenced um, and what struck me about Mark's work, what was made it so intoxicating, 
was that he was making these connections and sort of always trying to build his ideas into a kind of system of thought that, you know, explained everything. That was his ambition. Here's the multidisciplinary artist, Matt Dryhurst. I was living in London in the mid-2000s, um, and I remember checking out the K-Punk blog around the time that dubstep was a thing, um, and yeah, I was pretty depressed and broke living in London, um, and I came from like a metal and hardcore background, didn't really have much experience with electronic music, but his writing with Burial got me super interested in it. Um, it felt very reflective of my experience of the city at the time, and just general anxieties. Um, and I was studying film, and so it was also really nice that he commonly referenced uh, film in his writing. K-Punk as, as a blog was, it was it was really his engagement with pop culture. Lisa Blanick, journalist, editor, RA contributor, and a former colleague of Mark's at The Wire. It wasn't just the fact that, that he referenced larger ideas, it was also that he had a way with words in terms of turn of phrase and in terms of just capturing what something actually sounds like with words, which is the goal ultimately for, that's 60% of what you're trying to do as a music journalist, or at least it was at the time. I remember him writing about Umbrella, the Rihanna track, and um, and how that made me think about that track in a different light. And it, in, and the, you know, obviously the very first thing I did after that was put on Umbrella. That's the most powerful kind of music writing there is, where it immediately makes you want to to listen to what it is that's being written about and engage with it, and and uh, and think about it through this new lens that's being offered. I think I think what made him unique as a, a thinker and a writer was that he he had this big vision. He connected things that were you know in disparate fields. He he was playing for the highest stakes really, and so there was there was the actual substance of his ideas, but there was m more almost more important than the actual substance of the ideas, which were very provocative and original, was the attempt to connect them into a big system uh, and the clarity and passionate lucidity with which he could put them across. You know, it's all very well having great complex ideas. A lot of people in academia have that. What is really important and, and vital and rare, I think, is the ability to put it across in a way that people could, people who hadn't had an academic education could absorb. And that's what he was doing uh, on K-Punk and then in his journalism for so many different places and then in his books. Mark published several books on the small independent publisher Zero and its successor, Repeater, including Ghost of My Life, a collection of his writing from the K-Punk blog and elsewhere, and a recent essay on literature and film, The Weird and the Eerie. His big success was 2009's Capitalist Realism, a short political essay which became a word-of-mouth phenomenon, selling over 10,000 copies. Here's Tamar Schlein, who worked closely with Mark at Zero and then Repeater. I've worked at Verso and Zero and now at Repeater. I've worked with a lot of intellectuals, a lot of philosophers, a lot of theorists. Um, Mark was really one of the few people who I didn't find intellectually intimidating, not because he wasn't a genius, because he was, but who never, ever made you feel stupid. There were very few sort of philosophers that I would have felt comfortable, especially in my earlier years of doing that work, kind of chatting with about their ideas, questioning them, even arguing with them. What do you think it was about Marx's writing, particularly with capitalist realism, that, that meant that it sort of had this resonance, you know, it seemed to reach an audience that a book about theory on a small publisher wouldn't usually reach? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, one thing I've sort of realised since um, 
since he died is how many different people and how many different ways there are of relating to his work. So people that I would never really have thought of as being into his work, people that I wouldn't, you know, that aren't really into theory or whatever, have suddenly come and said that his writing on mental health kind of meant so much to them. And I think the fact that he never shied away from the personal as well uh, made it super accessible to a lot of people who probably wouldn't have read similar theory that was just ideas. So um, the books that, that Mark published on um, Zero and Repeater, what sort of life do you think they might have now? I mean, obviously capitalist realism had this huge impact, but the other books that he did and The Weird and the Eerie that's obviously just come out, you know, in what way do you think those might resonate with people? One thing that's been interesting actually is you know, I always thought of capitalist realism as his sort of big, most important book, but it's been really nice um, to hear so many people saying how much Ghosts of My Life meant to them, uh, particularly because I think at various points Mark didn't have a lot of confidence in him, in it himself. Here's the musician Holly Herndon, who has released Futuristic Pop on 4AD and Revenge International. I picked up capitalist realism at a museum bookstore in LA maybe six or seven years ago. There was something about living in San Francisco where it seemed like people were imagining all kinds of possibilities for a future, but with little mention of economic or political reform outside of capitalism. I think Mark was critical, but also an idealist at heart. And this really resonates with me. As a kid growing up in the American South, criticism was often confused with pessimism. But the real impetus was that he cared so much and thought that we could do so much better. He was also really able to contextualize pop culture in a way that's rare these days, which helped me to define my own role as a musician in the world. There's sometimes this demonization of people who think that music is about more than just music itself. Um, and Mark was really able to articulate the intersection between aesthetics and politics in a way that always felt relevant and rarely forced. Here's Holly on how Mark's work has influenced her music. I'm basically interested in conjuring up new fantasies um, that show us not only where we are now, but where we could potentially go. And so his work really showed me the importance of looking outside of my immediate situation. Um, but even more importantly, probably was his role as a contributor to a community. Um, you know, he did this through not only publishing his own work, um, also editing other people's work and hosting a, a really active dialogue on his um, on his blog. He contributed to a web of people where music and politics, philosophy and pop culture could all commingle. This kind of intersection of disciplines is something that I'm really interested in as well in my work. I've been trying to communicate that ideas don't really happen in a vacuum, that uh, they require a community of people to disagree with each other and foster new ideas. And Mark was one of those people. My name is James Parker and I record as Logos. What really influenced me was his way of being very creative with language and concepts. And I think it's really important to think about music before you make it. The track I'd most associate with K-Punk and Mark Fisher in my mind is probably Roughage Crew Ghosts, which is just a, you know, a perfectly jagged juxtaposition of sort of deterritorialized machinic impulse fused with this really skewed spectral echo from the 80s. Um, I think that definitely sums up Mark's writing for me.
I'm Jeremy Greenspan. I've been doing music for 15 years or something like that. I record under my own name. I record uh, with Matt Didymus. We release under the name Junior Boys. And uh, I make music with uh, Jesse Lanza. I'm from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I was in high school. I wasn't doing very well. I just ended up not going to classes. And my sister, meanwhile, was doing graduate work. She was doing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Warwick. She basically <laughs> just said, send them over here and uh, I'll, I'll deal with them. <laughs> so I did. And my sister was quite excited at the time about a kind of academic collective that she was part of at the university, which went on to be called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. Anyway, I met Mark Fisher, uh, I think the first night I came to England. I pretty soon became completely sycophantic towards Mark. I can't really say how he shaped me as an artist and a person because it was so total. Uh, I sort of thought of my life as before and after meeting Mark Fisher. Everything that I learned about music and film and philosophy and literature, everything came from Mark. It was just sort of almost like a, I kind of became a disciple of his way of thinking about the movements of culture and stuff like that. Here's Code 9. I was very surprised, as I'm sure a lot of people were, when he died, that um, looking at the response to his death, how many musicians were tweeting and saying how influential he was to them and that doesn't happen that often when, a, when artists admit to being influenced by a writer. I think everyone was uh, shocked by how deep his influence had run. Simon Reynolds. I think uh, in terms of his influence in music journalism, I think there's a lot of younger writers um, owe a little bit to Mark. I think of a writer like Adam Harper who the way he's written about things like Vaporwave is very much like uh, an extension of Mark's writing on ontology. I'm Adam Harper. I'm a music critic and musicologist. There are a few figures that I can point to that had as much impact on me, not just in music writing, but generally, um, than, uh, than Mark Fisher did. Part of what got me blogging in the first place was um, I saw the uh, blog network as um, older generation with with certain more sort of dogmatic views and uh, and so I got there um, got into blogging by by trying to argue back um, to uh, K-Punk about how I thought that uh, the music was um, was actually really exciting and really good and uh, he was just so convincing I, I couldn't I could no longer sort of see him as just somebody who is uh, who just couldn't understand um, um, he could understand absolutely and in ways that I hadn't appreciated so I first started blogging in response to this perceived slight on on uh, the newer music that I, I felt was associated with my generation but I could also see certain certain kinds of innovation in it that, that weren't being paid attention to but uh, you know as time went on I, I, I began to see myself as being on the same side as people like uh, like Mark Fisher especially I think for me it was the the student process of 2011 when all of the sort of divisions in talking about things like grime and dubstep and uh, all of the divisions in that seemed to be blown away when um, when the new government came in and especially the student protests and we were all um, sort of defending uh, further education, higher education, the humanities, that sort of thing. And it was around that time that uh, Mark approached me and said, um, would I write for Zero? I mean, who who has a faith in a 23-year-old in a writer who says they want to write about 
new music full stop um, and uh, it was it was Mark's belief in doing things outside of the system about having passion that couldn't necessarily fit into um, conventional academic boxes academic presses um, academic uh, roles and and, uh, and jobs and that sort of thing that meant that I, I could do this and uh, I mean it opened a huge number of doors for me K-Punk was like a hub of a whole community and you know Mark was very supportive of younger writers he mentored them he had this tremendous urge to draw things into a larger collective network people who were sort of in that fringe between the autodidact outsider thinker and people who were sort of renegades within academia which I think is really what um, Mark Fisher was he was like a renegade academic a sort of rogue theorist he told me he knew how difficult it was um being and being a, 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 an academic on the, on the fringes, and uh, just just generally a, a laugh, and it was it was really great to have a human being as well as a, a cybernetic uh, genius <laughs> in the same person. Here's Matt Tryhurst. It's a powerful legacy to think about. Um, if anything, I think he really succeeded in making a lot of space for a lot of people that I care about. He and a handful of others um, have made the conversation around electronic music and politics so uh, abundant and, and credible that I feel like there's some point in justification to throwing my ideas out there and that's a huge gift. I'm here with Tim Lawrence uh, at the University of East London. My experience and I think many other people's experience of him as a teacher is that he was extremely generous, extremely accommodating. So do you have a sense of, of kind of his manner as a teacher, could you talk a little bit about that side of what he did? He was just very, very committed to the teaching process. He was concerned with the welfare of the students, how they were able to kind of um, deal with what was being taught. And also, um, you know, Mark just took it all very, very seriously and, and in, in a, you know, emotionally as well as intellectually. And I, you know, I, wonder, I did sometimes wonder if, because you know, he, he wrote about his depression, there was no secret about this, I wondered if this was part of his, his attentiveness because of this, because he had struggled at points in his life, that he was attentive to the needs of students. Because we, we do know that you know, the number of students who are going into struggling with depression, with anxiety, going to student counselling services, I mean, it's now statistically through the roof, really in terms of these problems. And I thought Mark was, you know, I always sensed that he was very kind of aware of this and, and you know, took care with it. It's a funny kind of thing people ask when you make music. Um, who do you make music for? Do you make it for yourself? Or who do you, do you make it for your, your fans? And, and a lot of the time, I, as a musician, have felt like I was making music for the approval of specific people. Chief among, among those people was probably Mark. Our relationship, uh, kind of fell apart a little bit after his first real major bout with depression. And afterwards, uh, things were never the same uh, between us. But I always was trying to talk to him a bit through my musical interests. He was just this sort of constant presence in my life, even when he wasn't. So I felt as though I was constantly having kind of conversations with him through music and in terms of him being gone now it's a little strange because we had such little contact over the last almost 10 years it almost felt like I kind of mourned the friendship a long time ago um, and Mark was a kind of person who sort of had a kind of cosmic weight on his shoulders you know that's a kind of that's a kind of depression that you don't see very often 
you know, it's the kind of depression like Nietzsche had, you know, kind of like the f full sort of weight of cosmic horror. And so uh, it didn't come as a huge surprise, but it came as a major blow. The thing I think about him as a teacher, about him as a writer, about him as a theorist, was um, that he made very complex ideas really simple and accessible. And that was the thing that I remember being most impressed about. His ability to mix the sort of bizarre and the scandalous and the strange and the hilarious with concepts you might have, you know, uh, in another world this described as being dry uh, you know like neoliberalism like ontology like subjectivity like psychoanalysis you know, these kinds of things it was it was fantastic when we found out that he passed away a couple of days later Steve Goodman sent me a list of all of Mark's kind of uh, <laughs> all of like his uh, his insulting names for people that was these are real Markisms uh, Smugonaut that was one of his was that was, I mean, I think I've used the word smugonaut once a week for the last 20 years. Resentocrat. Jack officer, spelled J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. Purocrat. Smuggerati. That was a good one. Banalathon. Blandroid. <laughs> yeah, he was a funny guy. Thanks to everyone who contributed to this piece, and thank you for listening. If you're worried about someone who may be suicidal or are at risk yourself, you can contact the Samaritans in the UK by calling 116123. A list of hotlines in other countries can be found by following the link on the podcast pages of the Resident Advisor website.
In 2011, RA released its first ever film. It was called Real Scenes Bristol, and it told the story of how this small city in the west of England became a hotbed for electronic music. Back then, we admittedly didn't quite know what we were doing or where RA films would end up, but we did have a very talented director on board called Patrick Nation. Six years later, Patrick has been at the heart of the 50-plus films that RA has since released. So we're going to start the interview by playing a clip from Real Scenes London, which is a major upcoming project Patrick is working on. This is Josie Rebel talking to us in Zen Records in Tottenham, North London. When I hear jungle music, when I hear grime music, I just hear so much of the generations that have come before and I hear like reggae and I hear like dub, I hear like the pain of their parents, I feel those stories. I feel it's so deep within me. They're reissues, they're, they're, oh, they're okay. not originals. Yeah, yeah. There might be an original over there which might only be a little bit more expensive. Oh. You know? But get them when you can because once he stopped pressing them, then that's it. You won't press them again. All right, so let's begin with the principal project you're working on at the moment, uh, Real Scenes London, which we just heard a clip from. Uh, so to be honest here, we've been uh, kind of putting this off for a few years, haven't we? Um, I wondered why in your view, uh, now is a good time to tackle London and maybe explain why it has taken us this long to get around to it. Well, it's the 10th episode that we've done. Um, so it seems like a good round number to finally tackle London. I think the reason why we've left it so long is because it's A, just such a huge city, huge scene, massive history. Um, and it's also one that we're really close to, obviously we we both live here. And I think the what, reason why now is a good time to do it is that we have the experience of doing the previous nine and we can take that into this one and try and apply the same um, principles and uh, yeah, try and approach it in exactly the same way. I think it's really important to remove our feelings from it um, as much as we can, as difficult as that is. But it turned out to be a very interesting time to do it because we didn't pick London because Fabric had closed or um, because Dance Tunnel was closing. These things all happened after we decided to do it. So um, it turned out to be a very interesting time to um, cover London. And a lot of the time we were basically just trying to keep up with events that were happening. I suppose the, the fabric situation was something that uh, came up after the project had been commissioned, right? Exactly, yeah. It seemed like all hell broke loose in London um, and obviously these kind of stories are stories that were covered in the mainstream press um, way more than things in our world normally are. So it was almost like, you know, impossible for us to not get involved in these stories and to, and to cover them and um, something on that scale is like huge news in our scene but also for London as a whole you know it seemed to galvanize people um, and people got involved in it who are not even connected with our scene normally so. So we're a few months into the shoot now or you've been uh, covering various aspects um, of these stories for uh, maybe longer um, so at this point in time, how big a role do you think some of these um, ongoing, like fairly negative stories are going are to play in the eventual film? I think for some people who are not so closely connected with things, that will be the thing that brings them to it to try and, you know, find out the inside story or whatever you, however you want to look at it. But 
Um, I definitely don't think the way that filming's been going, the things that been, people have been, been saying to us, it's definitely not a doom and gloom story. Um, that's not our experience. Just purely as people that live in London, I don't think we, either of us, really believe that that's the case, that um, this narrative of London's club culture dying is really, is really true. Um, there's been some bad things that have happened, but there's also loads of new, really exciting things happening all the time. And I think comparing it as well to when we, when we did um, Real Scenes Mexico City, that was a film about an absence of a scene, really, and a bunch of people, well-intentioned people who, you know, are trying their best to make something and, you know, they're incredibly passionate, but there's no infrastructure in the city to do stuff. There's no um, history of dance music. There's like very few people whose full-time jobs are working in electronic music. So when you look at London compared to that, you've got loads of incredibly dynamic, very smart people who work full-time in electronic music who are looking for ways to make things happen and they'd adapt very quickly. You have to, that's one thing that we've discovered from doing this film, you have to adapt very quickly in London. So yeah, I think compared to somewhere like that, London's in a, in a very healthy place. Break down how you start a project like this. So a huge amount of research goes into it before we do anything. Um, and normally places that we know less about, like um, Johannesburg is a good example, or, or um, again, Mexico City. We approach it almost from a standing start and we speak to loads of people. We send out questionnaires to people. We kind of gather loads and loads of information and eventually some kind of consensus starts to appear. People start mentioning one particular thing, talking about that a lot, and we think well, there must be something in that. So let's let's find out more about that. And so we basically try we, we tried to do the same thing with London. We tried to approach it as if we knew nothing about it, speak to as many people as we can, gather as much information, and then um, keep objective. At the moment where you feel like you've got enough groundwork done, and you know there are some um, you know uh, themes emerging, let's say. What would be the next step? Next step is to try and sketch out some kind of structure. So you would do this before you spoke to anybody? We would, based on the research that we've done, we would then even just, not necessarily a structure, but just identify some themes that we're probably going to be um, you know, wanting to find out more about. But the important thing is to stay flexible throughout the filming process. So every interview you do, you learn something new. Um, you get a different perspective on something, so you really have to stay um, open-minded throughout the whole process. But yeah, we, we sort of start lining up interviews. We try and, before we do an interview, figure out what each person is going to be able to give us an insight into particularly and how that might fit into the film. The thing with these films is you could just do a bunch of individual profiles. Here's a record shop, here's a nightclub, Here's somebody who owns a, a label. But then if you did that, it would be very difficult to watch as a whole thing because it's just, here's a thing and here's another thing and here's another thing. So. I feel like in a way you're referencing some of the earlier projects when you say that. I, I, I feel like that was more our approach to begin with when we were kind of figuring out what this film was. Definitely, yeah, definitely. But 
yeah, it's be, I think it's become it became clear pretty quickly that um, it needs to be a coherent whole, and you need to be telling a story that has essentially a beginning, middle, and end. I mean, do you find that um, you know in the in the process of filming, the initial uh, idea that you had about a city will morph quite considerably to where you end up? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, like cities are such complicated, complex places. To try and really distill them down into like one story is is basically um, you could do it like five times, and each time it would be different. like the films that I like they have a subtext you know it's not just films books pieces of art whatever recently um, I watched G.I. Dreams of Sushi a film about a Japanese guy who runs one of the um, most highly rated sushi restaurants in the world it's not a film about sushi it's a film about family it's a film about ambition it's perfectionism but sushi is a really neat way into that. Yeah, sure. So we might get aspects of uh, the craft along the way, but the destination is is something bigger. Exactly, exactly. And and again, um, another one of my favourite films is Paris is Burning, which is a film about the, vo the voguing scene in New York um, in the late 80s, 90s. Um, and that is an incredibly powerful film, not because it goes in deep on like what voguing, voguing is, you know, as a, as a style, but it's the people that are involved in it and um, their stories. And through this very sort of, um, this, this scene of, um, you know, a marginalized group in New York, you get access into this uh, incredible world of stories. And that's, um, for me, what I find interesting. Yeah, I mean, my mind um, goes back to the Johannesburg project um, I think that was maybe the second film that we'd worked on together and um, you know I was very very fascinated by um, the unique characteristics of the music that uh, was being produced in the country and um, you know we, we were discussing what at its core this film was going to be about and of course we were profiling the uh, the scene in the city but um, you know, really we're telling a story about the um, sort of triumph um, over adversity through creative mediums. Yeah, exactly. And that's the part of the process that I really like, is figuring out, like joining the dots, all these different people you're talking about and they're telling you, or talking to, and they're telling you all these stories. And what's the, what's the theme, what's the overarching sort of common thread here? And, um, Quite often that presents itself to you at some point during the filming process and even sometimes during the editing process. And then you, once you have that, that's something which can, which can tie together all these individual stories. With that in mind, do you have a line for London at this point in time? <laughs> um, not yet. I mean, we're, you know, we're throwing ideas at each other, aren't we, at the moment? And um, things are beginning to emerge, definitely, but I wouldn't be confident enough to say anything right now. <laughs> yeah, totally fair. 
Uh, I wanted to discuss another of the big projects you worked on recently, but let's play a clip firstly. Every record matters. Every moment matters. Every scream, hands in the air, shuffle, the last drink, the last cook-up, all this stuff now upon us. And that's quite sad, because <laughs> I can't say I'll see you next year. Thanks, it's been an amazing season. This is it. So that was audio from Carl Cox, Space is the Place, which we jointly released with Channel 4 at the end of 2016. Uh, firstly, tell us about how the project came to be. So we were pitching ideas to Channel 4, um, and our world and Channel 4's world is, is fairly separate, although there is um, some crossover. I guess Channel 4 has a history of forms of dance music coverage right. going back quite a few years. Exactly, yeah. It's something they're interested in, and um, you know, we had a lot of meetings um, with, with a guy there who was very expressed the fact he was very keen to work with us and do something. Um, but obviously we have to find something which works for their audience because they can't go quite as niche as we can musically. Um, so basically Carl Cox sits in a bit of a sweet spot between RA and Channel 4. Um, so we, I was reading about the fact that it was his last um, season at Space and it was going to be an emotional farewell. I thought that's a good little uh, story to tell. Um, and I thought it might be something that Channel 4 would be interested in, so mentioned it and they went for it. And yeah, so we followed him last summer through his final season. So how did you find Carl as a subject? As you were obviously embedded in his life for a number of months. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, he is probably the most interviewed person that I've ever interviewed, interviewed <laughs> slash hung out with. Yeah, we always try to um, spend as much time with people as we can, you know, because that's the way you get to know them and they get to know you and they get to feel comfortable around you. With him, it was difficult because A, he's very famous um, and in demand. His time is very, you know, in demand. And then at the same time, it was his final season, so he was extra, extra busy. The kind of challenge with that film was how to break through his uh, standard response thing with when he's being interviewed, you know. He's been asked every question and he has basically a response that he just sort of goes to, to to answer that question. So how do you get past that? How do you get around that? And it was an ongoing struggle. And actually, the thing that we found was the big breakthrough um, was taking him back to Carl Scholten, where which is where he grew up. Um, a small town, he took us to his school, he took us to his family home and that day with him was like spending a day with a completely different person. He completely relaxed, you could see it on his face. He was, he was joking around, he was, I mean, he's, you know, he's, a, he's a funny character anyway, but he just felt really like at ease for the first time that we, when we were filming with him. And um, I think it was being back in that headspace head and we have a series called Origins, where we basically do that. We, we go back with people to their um, place where they grew up, um, and they revisit, you know, places that used to spend time or sort of moments that were important to them. And um, when you get somebody back in that headspace, it really has an interesting effect on them. You know, nostalgia sort of overcomes them, and they forget almost that they're being filmed, and they start to talk about 
their memories and you, you get a real sense of who they are and where they've come from. Did you have a, a permanent breakthrough with Carl after that point or did Ibiza mean that he kind of uh, reverted to... No, it was, it was after that point, filming with him was a completely different experience. And we've found that a few times with people, you know, once you have that breakthrough, um, you, it's like being with a different person. So you mentioned the Origins project and uh, the Between the Beats series um, we do is similar in that you have to like fully integrate yourself into uh, an artist's day-to-day, -day. you go on tour with them, you go back to their hometown in the case of Origins. Uh, one thing that's always um, stood out to me or I've always been curious about is how you find uh, a balance between getting the story you want and being the pest with the camera always rolling, you know, where, where is the line drawn? Like, is it a case of being in constant dialogue with the artists? Like, you know, okay, we're shooting now, we're not shooting now, or, you know, how does that process usually unfold? It's a very delicate one, and it's something which is basically instinct. Um, I think when you're younger, and I mean, I've, I've been doing this for quite a long time now, and when you're first starting out, you're really probably over pushy with people and it can have the opposite effect that you, if you're too much and you know, they just kind of, kind of closes up. Yeah, exactly. So you gotta know when to back off and you gotta know when to push for things. Um, and for different people, it's different. Obviously you have to understand them before you know how much you can, what the you know, best way to get the best out of them is. I think it's important to give a bit of yourself as well. Like they need to know who you are. Like if you just go in as a sort of very, um, anonymous person who's just asking questions all the time, I think. So it's not all business, we need to connect on, on some sort of friendship level. Definitely, yeah, you have to connect on a human level, but then at the same time, not become mates. <laughs> sure, for sure. So you have to, yeah, you have to connect. I mean, there's, there's normally a point like, um, I remember when I was filming Motor City Drum Ensemble, um, and we did the Between the Beats with him, he was um, talking about his uh, struggles with anxiety, um, and he's touring. And there was a point where we finished filming, we went back to our hotel and he's like, okay, man, we're gonna sit up and we're gonna like, have a beer and we're gonna watch some YouTube videos. And um, that was the point I felt that we kind of connected and um, we were watching like stupid goat videos or whatever. And um, that was the point where I felt like he had warmed to me to the point where he wanted just to hang out. And that was, you know, that's, that's nice when you get to that level. And, but you still have to be able to ask difficult questions if you need to. interesting aspects of these projects for me has been the uh, tension that exists between my instincts as an editor and yours as a filmmaker. Uh, so I find myself applying the same uh, mindset, if you like, uh, that I have with our written content. I'm kind of wanting to go 
deep on the nitty gritty of genres and the processes behind things, whereas I find that you tend towards broader, uh, more universal themes that transcend uh, the scene we're working in. Do you think it's almost a requirement that these films say something beyond the obvious matter of the music and the artists at hand? I think one thing about music is that it's a very personal thing, so when you're listening to it, your reaction to it is your own and somebody else's could be completely different. So when, when somebody makes a piece of music, they make it because it's something that you can't say in any other form. So, you know, if you try, you can't express yourself in words, you can make a song, you can make some music and that transmits a feeling or a message or whatever it is. So I think um, trying to make a film about somebody doing that is very difficult because it's almost like the song does it better than you ever could. Um, but what you can do with the film is to try and understand what led the person to want to do that, communicate whatever they're trying to communicate. So for me, I, th I find it very interesting to try and understand where an artist is coming from um, and what they're trying to say. And quite often I've found that by spending time with these musicians, um, I understand them a lot better by the time the process has come to an end and that enhances my enjoyment of their music. So for example, the Black Madonna, to see her play and then understand where she's coming from gives it another dimension, you know. Black Coffee, hearing his story, really makes you hear his music in a completely different way. Um, same with DVS1, I think. Um, so there's something about each person that comes through in their music and I think the thing that the film can do really well is to try and understand what that thing is. For women in this industry, as in all industries, there is an additional um, component, which is the professional beauty qualification, to quote Naomi Wolf. The idea is that in addition to having all the other skills that men have, we do kind of expect that women will keep up a certain facade of beauty. Um, and I do think that that is a thing that exists in, in all industries. I'm not thin. I'm not conventionally pretty. I'm, I, I'm fine with all of those things. I'm fine with it, but the world isn't fine with it. Tell us a bit about what's got you up to this point. Your, your background was initially in television, that's right. Yeah, so I worked in te television since I started my career, basically. Um, I was freelance. I made a film for Channel 4, which was about the song Blame It on the Boogie by Michael Jackson, which was actually written by an English guy called Mick Michael Jackson. Um, he released the song at the same time as the Jacksons released the song, so they went head to head in the charts. That was my first music film, really. Like Before that, I'd done um, a lot of human interest stuff. Um, but music's always been a huge passion of mine. And I was working at a production company and somebody, a friend there, told me that a resident advisor was looking for somebody to make films for them. I thought, she said, oh, this would be perfect for you. So um, I came along and met RA, did the first three real scenes, went back to working TV, but just felt anecdotally like less and less people that I knew actually were watching TV in a sort of traditional form. And it was becoming pretty evident that stuff was moving online pretty quickly. So it's almost like this is not where it's at. 
Yeah, and also for my personal tastes, TV is not not able to go very niche when it comes to arts and um, the, th the things that I'm interested in. You have to basically go online to find that kind of coverage of, of the arts, you know, and, uh, of music. And um, for me to be able to make films that I wanted to watch, it just made more sense for me to do stuff outside of television. Were there any directors in particular that uh, sort of got you got you going? Were sort of particularly inspirational? There's actually a a strand on BBC that I used to watch when I was a kid called Arena. I don't know if you know about that, but it was like a, a BBC art strand. It has this um, Brian Eno music at the start, of, like for the ident of um, all the films, and it, the films cover everything from um, you know like novelists to filmmakers to musicians. And I used to be really obsessed with those films. I used to stay up late and watch them when I was a kid, and they always, I felt that they always had a an atmosphere about them. Those films, they were really interestingly done quite weird sometimes and um, I just always thought if I could make something like that I'd be happy. <laughs> In the arena strand there's a film called Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus which is about this, um, I think he's a country and western musician called Jim White and you should watch it, it's, it's on the iPlayer now, you should check it out, it's like just in terms of doing a music documentary it's so interestingly done, so evokes a time and a place and the same thing for um, Paris is Burning, which is one of my all-time favourites. You know, it's like the benchmark for me in terms of making a film about a scene that's just the best. You guys are a small team of uh, three people in the films department. Um, you know, when you were putting together the team, let's say, what qualities do you feel uh, needed to be present to make it a success? I think uh, well, I'm very lucky, first of all, to have two extremely talented people working with me. Um, Guy is a specialist in sound, um, but he also shoots, he also edits, basically what anything he turns his hand to, he's, he's brilliant at it. Um, and then uh, Sophie, who's just recently joined us, um, is a producer-director, super impressive, uh, really happy to have her on the team, incredible energy, um, very talented shooter, editor. The main quality that you need to do it is, is to be curious, you know, interested in people. Um, interested in music, interested in discovering things. Uh, I really like the idea of we might film somebody today who like goes on to become like an Aphex twin or something and um, it's very exciting to think that maybe you could uncover something which is right at the beginning of something really significant. <laughs> okay, that's it for this month. You can find past episodes of the show on iTunes. Search for The Hour on residentadvisor.net or find them on the RA Exchange SoundCloud page. Thanks for listening.